four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. This is UniversalExports.com. And now, your host. Yes. And this time, we'll take on a trek of considerable challenge, well, for this reporter, with stunning visual delights. We'll hear about one of Sydney's major attraction, Stroke Workhorses. Find out where one of the best, if not the best, pantry cafe in Victoria is. And where you can get a chance to win a cooked lobster every five minutes of the day. So let's jump in and find out things you may not have known about the most livable city in the world. Well, sometimes it is. It's known as the coffee capital, the culture capital, the wine capital. Australia capital from 1901 to 1927. I'm talking about Melbourne, Australia. And here are some more interesting facts that you may find surprising. That was the sound of a fox. Why? Because Melbourne is also the fox capital of the world, with anything from 6 to 23 foxes per square kilometre in the urban area. Typically the European or red fox. They are one of the most invasive species ever introduced into Australia, up there with the prickly pear and rabbits. Melbourne's tramway system is the world's fourth largest and the largest outside Europe, with 493 trams servicing 24 routes with 1,763 tram stops on 250 kilometres of track. So there. The world's first feature film was made in Melbourne in 1906. The film was the story of the Ned Kelly gang. It opened on Boxing Day in 1906 at Melbourne's Athenaeum Theatre. Victorian government tried to censor the film because it portrayed the Kelly gang sympathetically but the public flocked to screenings both around Australia and internationally. Did you know Melbourne was originally planned to be Melbourne Batmania after John Batman? In fact, the settlement was known as Batmania for two years from 1835 to 1837 prior to officially being named Melbourne. At the 2016 census, Melbourne exceeded the national average for the proportion of residents born overseas, 34.8% compared to the national average of 23.1%. In 1956, Melbourne hosted the first Olympic Games ever staged outside Europe and North America. Melbourne's most popular restaurant is, or was, a tram, the Colonial Tramcar Restaurant. At the time of writing, the Colonial Tramcar Restaurant is off the rails, with legal action pending after Yarra Trams took all three of the company's vintage restaurant trams out of service, raising safety concerns about the older vehicles. Australia's first traffic lights were installed in Melbourne in 1928 at the corner of Collins and Swanson Streets. They were manually operated by a policeman standing on the adjacent footpath. Melbourne's Dr David Warren invented the black box flight recorder in 1958. The black box has proven invaluable in investigations into countless worldwide aviation disasters since. However, it's not black, it's orange, naturally. 
1880, Melbourne was identified as the richest city in the world in the boom period following the Victorian gold rush. In that year, the city's population reached 280,000. At the same time, it was the second largest city in the British Empire, after London. Ah, I remember this one well. Until 1966, Melbourne was home to the six o'clock swill. The rush to buy last drinks before the pubs were forced to close at 6pm. Six o'clock closing was introduced in 1917 as a temporary measure, both as a wartime austerity measure and to improve public morality. The temporary measure lasted for 50 years. Now to be fair, let's talk about things Sydney, and particularly Sydney ferries. Sydney's iconic harbour ferries are a colourful institution jam-packed full of history, which can be traced all the way back to the first ferry to enter service just 22 months after the arrival of the first fleet. The Rose Hill Packet, the Lump as she was better known, was the first ship built in Australia and operated a short-lived service between Sydney Cove and Parramatta, taking up to a week to make the trip upriver. It was discontinued in 1800. Other early ferry services were operated by rowboat, but it wasn't until 1861 that the first high-profile commercial venture was introduced by none other than James Milson. His North Shore Ferry Company began running a 60-passenger vessel between Circular Quay and Milson's Point. But the near North Shore boasted a population of only a thousand or so people, insufficient to sustain the service, and Milson was forced to look to the colony's new frontier, Manly. The first irregular manly services were operated by a wooden paddle steamer, the Brothers. But as the need for regular and improved services increased, an iron paddle wheeler, Phantom, was brought online. The first vessel dedicated to the manly run, Phantom, also produced the colour scheme which was to become standard livery for vessels operating the service. The dark green hull, the white funnel topped with a black stripe. The majority of Sydney's pioneering ferry services combined to form Sydney Ferries Limited in 1899, which by 1932 had become the world's largest ferry operator, carrying some 30 million passengers annually. But the opening of the Harbour Bridge in the same year resulted in a massive decline in ferry patronage. Private operators faced financial ruin and eventually the New South Wales Government was forced to take over most services. In 2012, the fleet's ownership turned full circle with Harbour City Ferries returning to private ownership, swept up by a partnership comprising of Transfield, naturally, and Veolia Transdev. The major player in Sydney's water transport industry then joining several other privately owned, but very much smaller operators running a wide variety of services. One of them, Rossman Ferry Services, with their fleet of five irreplaceable handcrafted timber vessels, carries on a tradition of service on the harbour dating back to the early 1900s. Sydney's current mix of ferries ranges from the classic timber lines of the Rossman fleet to the modern double-enders plying the Manly route and sleek high-speed catamarans, all servicing some 40 wharves around the harbour and carrying in excess of 14 million passengers a year. For large numbers of Sydneysiders, the ferries are part of their daily commute as well as a mainstay of recreational travel. And it's a similar story for visitors. 
Whether sightseeing at the rocks, Darling Harbour and Taronga Zoo, or dining out and shopping in Double Bay, the ferries are a convenient, relatively cheap and relaxing way to get around. They also open up the islands of Sydney Harbour. Originally there were 13, but some, including Garden Island, have since been joined to the mainland. Port Denison, Cockatoo Island, Garden Island and Shark Island are currently served by regular ferry services. Fort Denison, or Pinchgut, was originally a convict prison and later a fort aimed at protecting Sydney from a feared Russian invasion. Cockatoo Island also started out as a convict establishment but was later used for shipbuilding. Today it's a popular picnic spot and tourist attraction. And Pinchgut currently is closed for works as I found out only a month or two back. Garden Island has a long and ongoing association with the Navy. The only access to the public areas of the island is via ferry. Many of the old military facilities are open for inspection and it's home to the Navy Heritage Centre Museum and there are some graffiti from the original convicts. Shark Island is a former animal quarantine station just offshore from Rose Bay. It's a very popular picnic spot and has fabulous views up and down the harbour. Sydney siders are fortunate indeed to live on what probably is the world's greatest natural harbour and the ferries are a great way to experience all it has to offer. Now let me tell you about the George Bass Coastal Walk which a group of us undertook recently. This clifftop trail from Kilgunda to San Remo's outskirts follows George Bass's voyage of discovery along the southern edge of the Anderson Peninsula over 200 years ago. The walk is about 8 k's long, two or three hours, one way, or 16 k's if you do the whole walk there and back. The walk offers spectacular views of the coastline. As some of us found, you may prefer to do one half of the walk, starting from Punchbowl Road at the San Remo end and walk to Punchbowl Beach and back. That's what I did so we could get the cars to Kulkunda to meet up with the rest of the group. Parts of the George Bass Coastal Walk take you down to the beach, so check the tide conditions before setting out. If you don't have a car, you can get to this walk by taking a bus to Kulkunda and starting a walk from that end. A bonus of this approach is that Kulkunda is a lovely little surf town and also a draw card for foodies, as the pub and general store both pride themselves on their gourmet offerings. There are no food options at Punchbowl Road End, nor are there toilets. The Granville Pantry. What a fantastic find this gem is. Unable to get into Kilcunda for lunch due to extreme traffic, we decided to return to Melbourne, but stopped at Granville to find this spot. Excellent service, food and atmosphere. And even though they too were very busy, the service was quick and there was even time for some great conversation with the host Pam Calderwood. I wouldn't take her on if you upset her. The girls also took advantage of knitting a row on the available scarves that were being made for charity by the local CWA. Also, they make the best milkshakes, malted milkshakes that is, ever. Could not recommend this place more highly. It will be a definite stop every time we go in that direction. It's at 1509 Bass Highway, Shop 7, Grantville, Victoria, Australia. How we found this place was after doing the George Bass Coastal Walk. We had anticipated having lunch at the Kilcunda pub, but we were unable to get anywhere near the pub, and that was because we were not aware of the Kilcunda Lobster Festival. 
an annual fundraising event held in the small town located just 12 k's east of Phillip Island, and the end of the coastal walk if you're coming from San Remo. The Kilcunda Lobster Festival is where you can buy, sell or eat lobsters as well as enjoy a number of fun activities. Some 7,000 people are drawn to this festival each year. One of the most popular attractions of the Lobster Festival is the Lobster Spinning Wheel, where ticket holders have the opportunity to win a freshly cooked lobster. The wheel spins every five minutes between 10am and 3pm. There is live music throughout the day with loads of hot food and cold drinks available, market stalls, art and craft, and inevitably face painting. Bring cash though, as FPOS is generally not available at the stalls. Thank you for being with me today. I've just about run out of tape on this little machine, so I'll leave it till our next podcast, hopefully sooner rather than later. Cheers. Bye-bye. Universalexports.co It's very vague, isn't it? Universal Exports. I know. Could be what anything. do they export? I know. Yeah. I know.